and that's winter, and I just don't like winters much. But uh, but I'll be honest, I'm, I'm kind of ready for summer to be over so we can get people back to church. I know vacation time and so many things going on, but um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a full uh, church again. I'm going to start off the, this morning by... I hate to say this, but I made you look, didn't I? Uh, really, there's nothing wrong with that, that light, but, but you joined, the, the crowd joined in to look at that just as, as I did. Uh, I've been to New York City one time. I'll, I'll make a point here. I've been to New York City one time when I was in college. A group of about 16 to 18 college kids went, we actually went to Connecticut and spent a week doing some revival work in Connecticut, but we spent one day in New York City as a group, so, I remember two things that really stood out about that day in New York City. One of them was a picture that I got taken of me. I was sitting on a park bench in Central Park, and there was a homeless guy. Actually, he was there first. A homeless guy laying asleep on a park bench, and I got a friend of mine to take my picture with me sitting on the park bench with my arm around this homeless guy. Now, I grew up in a small town in southern Illinois. I'd never seen a homeless guy. I'd never seen a homeless guy asleep on a park bench. I grew up in a little town. I'll be honest, I'd never seen a park bench before. And so that really was one of my favorite memories from that trip was, was my picture. We, we have it somewhere in our a stack of photos at home. And, and I was proud of that picture. The other thing I remember from that trip, we were walking down one of the streets in New York City. Like I said, 16 or 18 of us. And about halfway down the block, we, we see a guy that had stopped and was doing just what I did. Was standing there on the street looking up at one of the skyscrapers. And as we started to approach, we noticed people began to stop with him and gathered around him. A crowd began to gather, and they, they did the same thing. They stopped, and they were looking up. Even a couple of them did this and pointed. And, and so as we walked up, we did the same thing. We stopped, and all 16 or 17 of us stood there and looked up at the skyscraper. We were there just a moment or so when the guy that, that was the original guy Kind of took his eyes off the skyscraper and just walked away. Left a crowd of us looking up at the skyscraper, wondering, I had no idea what he was looking at, but he, he drew a crowd. Recently I was driving on I-435 around Kansas City and the three lanes of traffic suddenly slowed down to a crawl. Three full lanes of traffic. We were, we were going about five miles an hour. For about a, about a mile or mile and a half, we just crept along and I'm thinking, Okay, there's construction and it's going to restrict down to two lanes and then down to one. Or there's been a bad accident and we're going to, but, but we went about a mile, a mile and a half and suddenly the traffic just took off again. And the only thing that I could figure there, there was not on the, not on the side of the road, but down in the grass was a state patrolman sitting there. He wasn't doing anything. There was no cars, no wreck. He was just sitting there. But he had drawn a crowd. Everyone, I guess, slowed down to look at what was going on, trying to figure out, kind of like I did, why is he there? But he, he definitely drew a crowd. When, when our boys were little, we flew, flew from Chicago back to St. Louis. Uh, our flight landed in St. Louis before we came back to Kansas City. And on our flight was Bubba Smith. How many of you know who Bubba Smith is? Okay, got a few. Colton, you know who Bubba Smith is? You don't know who Bubba, Selena, you know who Bubba Smith is? Oh, he's Bubba, there you go. (laughs) Okay, this Bubba Smith was a little taller, 
a little darker. If you know who he is, he's a little darker than this Bubba Smith. Okay, I, I, but on the plate, look, Bubba Smith. He was a former NFL football player. I believe was a defensive lineman. Uh, went on to star in some movies. Well, not star, but was in some movies. I think he was in the Police Academy movies uh, and, and did a little bit of announcing. And, and we saw him when we got off the plane. A few people went up to him to get his autograph. So we sent our our boys with some pens and paper to to, to go get an autograph. There's a lady beside me who dug in her purse quickly for a pen and paper and gave it to her children to run off. And then she looked at me and said, who is that? <laughs> and I think when I said Bubba Smith, she still didn't know. But he was drawing a crowd, and so he must be someone important. Um, today, uh, and don't say amen to this, but today we will conclude our series on Mark. We're finally finishing the Gospel of Mark. One of the themes that you surely have seen or hopefully have noticed throughout the, the, the months that we've spent in the gospel is that wherever Jesus went, it seemed like he would draw a, a crowd. He always drew a crowd. When he walked, when he walked along the roads, there were crowds. When he walked along the Sea of Galilee, there were crowds. When he healed someone, and you can certainly understand that, but when he healed someone, there were crowds. When he, when he gave someone a sight, there was a crowd. When he saw Bartimaeus, there was a crowd. When when he fed the 5,000, then a little bit later on the 4,000, there was a crowd. When he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, there was a crowd. And even, yes, at his, his, his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, if you read the text, there were crowds. At least 25 times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark writes in... In describing the scene, Mark writes that there was a, a crowd. After his first miracle, there was a crowd. When the, the, the paralytic was dropped through the roof, uh, cause they couldn't get to him, but there was, uh, there was a, a crowd. When he, when he got in chapter three along the Sea of Galilee, there were so many people that he had to get in a boat to, to teach them because there was a crowd. When, when they were trying to find a quiet place to rest and just relax and and eat something because they were hungry there were so many people that that they ended up jesus fed the five thousand later on a similar scene with the fourth four thousand there was a crowd in chapter two it says he was in judea and there was a crowd in jericho when he ran into bartimaeus there was a crowd every time we see jesus there were crowds there were always crowds except one time the one time that there should have been, the one time that the crowd should have outnumbered all of the other crowds, the one time when, 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 when the eleven apostles should have gathered all the believers together with them to be a part of a huge crowd, there was none. The, the one time when everyone who had heard Jesus speak that, 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 that were believers or even the ones he had inspired but weren't quite sure yet really who Jesus was should have been there. There wasn't a crowd. The, the one time when anyone who was looking for life's, uh, answers to life's questions and, and were curious should have been there, there was not a crowd. In, in Jerusalem, there, there were, in a room huddled the eleven apostles that were left and and they were defeated and discouraged and disillusioned, but there should have been a crowd. Throughout all of Jerusalem and Judea, and by this time, even the word should have spread to Samaria and probably even all the way up to Galilee, all those who had believed in Jesus were crushed and completely lost. 
there should have been a crowd. The Pharisees were meeting together and they were gleeful and giddy and they were gushing with excitement because they thought they had won. They thought they had finally silenced this, this heretic. There should have been a crowd. The Romans were puffed up and they were pious and they were proud that they had put to rest one more uh, insertion. But there should have been a crowd. Satan was celebrating his victory. He was singing his own praises. He was delirious with delight because he thought he had defeated once and all and once and for all this holy one of God by sending him to the grave. There should have been a crowd. It was the most pivotal defining moment of all the history. Jesus had defeated the grave. He had conquered the power of sin. He had destroyed the grip of death over us. And he had won the victory for us. And there should have been, there should have been a crowd. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Mark chapter 16 and let's, let's see who Mark tells us was there. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Well, I've got good news this morning. Jesus always draws a crowd. Now, now, I'll give you, I spent a little time pointing this out. He didn't then. There should have been a crowd at the resurrection. Jesus had prophesied at least three different times, had prophesied that he was going to Jerusalem, he, he would be crucified, and then he would come back to life. In Mark chapter 9, verse 9 is the first time that he mentions that, that you'll remember this, when I come back to life, when I'm risen from the dead. Verse 10 says, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what does rising from the dead mean. Later on in chapter 9, verse 32, it says there, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. But it doesn't change the message. It doesn't change the news. The resurrection still draws a crowd. For them, it was a little delayed. They, they were slow arriving, but the, the, the message of Jesus winning over death and sin and Satan draws a crowd. If we, as a church... If we as believers trust in the cross, if we look to the cross, then we will have uh, the ability to draw a crowd. Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says, He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. If we as a church and we as believers believe in the power of the resurrection, then it will draw a crowd. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Paul says, Therefore what I received I passed on to you as, for, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If we as a church and we as believers trust that we are changed by the cross, that we are changed by the resurrection, First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. If we embrace the truth that as Christ followers were forgiven by the work of the cross, we're adopted into sonship, we're sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're appointed to be ambassadors, we're called to be salt and light, and God has appointed for us good works to do. If we believe that, I've got good news. Jesus still 
draws a crowd. If we believe in the resurrection, if we put our hope there, then we have to make them look. See, the crowd comes when we make them look. Look, uh, if, you, if you want to make note of it or, or read it in your Bibles, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So basically, from all over the, the whole region, people came to Jesus because because they heard about what he was doing. We have to make them look, first of all, at us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We are called to be a light so that the world can see us. When Rita and I lived in Baton Rouge, our, our, our older two boys were, were young at the time, we were coming home one night from church, and uh, and we saw a light in the sky. It was a, a, a searchlight, a big beam of light that was kind of going back and forth across the sky. And we didn't have anywhere to be. We were in no hurry. Uh, the kids were fine in the in the back seat in their car seat. So so we decided we're going to find the source of that light. So, so we headed down Florida Boulevard. Florida Boulevard is the... The main drag that cuts Baton Rouge in half uh, on, from east to west, uh, right down the heart of the city, it goes all the way east to Greenwell Springs, Denham Springs, and all the way down to, to downtown Baton Rouge. And we started going down Florida Boulevard, watching for that light, and we got closer and closer, and we finally came to the source. It was sitting in a car lot, a great big search. I've ever seen them. They're huge. And, and, and we got right there, and we watched the light going back and forth across the sky. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you kind of messes up the illustration. It was a little bit anticlimactic because we got there, we looked at it, and then we went home. <laughs> what do you do? You sit and look at a searchlight. But but the reality is that light, that light drew us to that car. Now, we didn't buy a car, but it at least got us there. Now, now Jesus says that we are called to be light. Church, we're called to be light. What in the world does that mean? We're called to to show his love in a world that's Hurting and longing for love, we're called to love. Our theme for this year is love God, love people. We're called to love one another. We're called to love God. We're called to love outside the church. When, when we love like Christ has called us to love, we are a light in darkness. We're called to forgive. Well, you, you watch reality shows. You watch any television today. You know, one thing you see constantly is is conflict. You see people upset with one another, struggling with one another. We live in a world that, that has gone away from forgiveness and, 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 and love that way and has gone towards being angry all the time. We're called to forgive. Church, when we forgive one another, when we are a shining example of how we can forgive each other in love in the church, starting in the church, we are a light to a world that's struggling. When we have compassion, when the world sees us Seeing past ourselves and seeing others, the world will be changed. We're called, we're called to, to help, help the world, uh, see us at the church. We, we need to be seen as the church. We are the way. We are the truth. We are the hope. And as the church, we can make them look at what God has for us. We need to make them see. 
If we believe in the resurrection, if we believe in the power of the cross, we need to make them see Jesus. Mark chapter 5 verse 19 says this, Jesus did not let, uh, did not let him. He's talking there about the man that he cast the, the demons out of that was legion. And the guy wanted to go with Jesus. They were getting ready to go in the boats to the other side of the Jordan, or the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the guy said, can I go along? And Jesus didn't let him go. Instead, this is what he said. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man, the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. We need to make them see what God has done. Church, we want to have an impact on our community. Then, then our community has to see what Christ has done in us. Bob Johnson uh, runs a uh, a mission in New York City. Uh, they, they feed the homeless. They uh, they house some of them as many as they can, and then they, it's also a missional church where they they have church service for these men and women of the street. And he in, in one of his books he tells the story of of an event one Sunday night at a church service. And, and he said, uh, uh, when you have a church service that's for, for street people and homeless, said you can have all kinds of things happen. And so said they just learn to go with the flow. And he said, after the service one night, as they had the altar call, there was a guy that came literally stumbling down the aisle. He, he obviously had, had had too much to drink. And as he stumbled down the aisle, he was, he was unshaven and his clothes were dirty. And, and, and he was three or four pews away and, and he could smell the alcohol in which he said it actually was a good thing because it drowned out the smell of the filth that was covering this guy. And, and the guy literally stumbled up to him. And when the, the song stopped, the guy leaned over to, to, to Pastor Johnson. And he said, I, I got, I, I got, I got something I want to say. And, and service like us, we might be a little bit hesitant to hand the mic, but he was used to it. So he handed the guy the mic and he looked with the mic in his hand, and he looked at Pastor Johnson. He said, Pastor Johnson, he kind of stumbled a little bit, and he got his feet back underneath him, and then he burped a couple times, and he said, Pastor Johnson, Pastor Johnson, I want to be just like Bernie. I want to be just like Bernie. Now, everyone in the everyone in the, the service that night knew exactly what he was talking about. See, everyone there knew who Bernie was. Bernie was over there on the front row of the of the service. And he was dressed nice and clean-shaven. His eyes were bright. But a year earlier, Bernie was that guy. Bernie was a drunk on the street. He was disheveled. He was, he was falling apart. But the message of Christ and Christ's love and forgiveness got a hold of him. And it completely changed his life. And, and this drunk stumbled in because Bernie had, had been standing up and witnessed to all these people. He, he walked in that day drunk as a skunk. But I want to be like him. Church, if we believe in the power of the resurrection, if we believe in the power of the cross, if we believe that it can change our lives, then we have to make them see. And it's done by letting them see what Christ has done and by what Christ can do. If Christ can change our hearts, if Christ can give us new life, if Christ can give us hope and forgiveness and love and compassion, if He gives that to me 
and he gives it to you, then he can offer it to someone else. We can make a difference. We can draw a crowd if they can see that. And finally, if we believe in the power of the resurrection, then we need to make their day. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This verse, if you don't have it underlined in Mark, I'd encourage you to underline this verse. One of the powerful verses, maybe a pivotal verse in the text says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We can draw a crowd if we're like Jesus and we see. By by seeing people in their need, by seeing people who are hurting and struggling and realizing that we can reach out to them, we can, through the power of the resurrection, draw a crowd. Last Thursday morning, or I guess a week ago Thursday morning, we had our prayer time here at the church every second and fourth Thursday mornings at 6.30. There's a group of uh, three or four of us that meet and pray. And let, let me encourage you and, and invite you. That's not a closed meeting. That's for anyone that wants to come. Uh, in fact, I, I can honestly tell you it's one of my favorite things that, that I've enjoyed about being here at Troy Christian Church is meeting with those ladies on Thursday morning. Um, but but uh, the, the last Thursday that we met, uh, at the end of our prayer time, Jill Huss made a comment. She said, guys, I want to share this with you. Uh, she said, the day before, said, I prayed in my morning prayer time, I prayed that God would use me. I just prayed a simple prayer. God, God, make my, make my life count today. Give me an opportunity. Use me today. And she said the coolest thing happened. She said five times during that day, she got to speak to people that she had been praying for. Five people that were on her prayer list. One of them had cancer. One of them, another person had some other health issues. Another of them were having some family issues. Five different people she ran across that day in just the normal course of the day. And, and she said the first one came, kind of came across her path and, and she battled with herself. Do I say anything? Do I? And she just felt, you know, hey, I prayed, Lord, make a difference. And so she went up to that person, hey, I just want you to know I prayed for you today. This morning in my prayer time, I prayed for you. And not once, but five times that day, people she had prayed for walked through her path. And she was able to bless five people, five people to know that they were prayed for. Our world needs to know that we care. If if we don't care, they'll pick it up immediately. And, and the reality is our world doesn't care what we believe. Now, now, I'm not saying what we believe is not important. In fact, it's of utmost important. Uh, we, we have to be, we have to be honed in on the truth and we have to speak the truth in love. So, so I'm not saying truth is not important and, and theology and, and knowing what we believe is not important. It, it, it is. But, but, but the reality is the world really doesn't care what we believe. They care if we care. The world's going to notice first if we care and, and then we can introduce them to truth. But they have to know that we care. I, hopefully I haven't told this story before, but, uh, a few years ago when I, when I did a unit of, of uh, clinical pastoral education at, uh, Mosaic, uh, Life Care, uh, part of that class was I would be the chaplain, uh, for, for a, a, a night session once a week or once a month. And, and it was one Saturday night I was the chaplain and, and my pager went off about 12 or 12, 15. And, and I looked at it and I had what was called an orange alert, which, which means I had to, had to report to the emergency room. There was an emergency coming into the emergency room and, and they wanted me there just to be a support. And it turned out there was a guy coming in having a heart attack. 
And I got to his uh, ER room. They just finished doing some tests, and and he was in the room on his bed. They're getting ready to take him back to the cath lab. And I stepped in. I had just time to introduce myself and pray with him and pray with his wife. And they came and whisked him away to the cath lab and led us to the waiting room for the where where the wife could wait during the catheterization. And, and I sat in that room with the wife. And I don't know. It was about twenty minutes later. Her pastor showed up. Her her, her pastor was a young seminary student. He was probably about 24, 25 years old, and, and he showed up, he and his wife, and, 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 and he prayed with her. We sat there just for a few moments, and the doctor came out after the test, Dr. Lamoglia, and, and uh, Dr. Lamoglia came out and, and said the cath went well. We, 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 I think they cathed a couple arteries and said he, he's doing well right now. Not out of the woods, but he's doing well. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow the conversation turned between Dr. Lamoglia and her pastor Turn to theology. Now, I don't know how you get that from, from, from a medical procedure, but they got taught, Dr. Moglia, I think, is a Catholic, or at least a version of a Catholic, and they got debating back, uh, back and forth about theology. Now, Rita's not a big fan of Dr. Moglia. I, I, I like Dr. Moglia. I think he's, he's hilarious. I love his, uh, irreverent sense of humor, which my wife does not care for. Um, but, but but they're going back and forth, and they're both laughing because they think they can, they're getting the end. They one will throw out a scripture, and then a moldy would say something, and this young pastor would say something, and they were having the time of their life. And I'll be honest, I was sitting there looking at this lady, and she had told me earlier that they were to leave on vacation that morning, that next morning, and now she didn't even know if she was going to take her husband out of the hospital. She was scared and she was hurting and she was uncertain. and She needed someone just to hold her hand and to, to give her encouragement. And, and her doctor and her pastor were debating theology. Now, that's important that we know what we believe. But you know what she needed to know? She needed to know that someone cared. I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do? I, you know, I wanted to slap both of them. Guys. There's a time and a place. This is neither one of those. So finally, I, when, when they slowed down a second, I jumped in and asked, hey, Dr. Molia, when can she go back and see her husband? And, and it finally got them off theology, and, and, and we changed the, the course of study. Now, I'll be honest. I doubt if the next Sunday this lady went to church and, and, and her friends gathered around and said, well, how's your husband? Oh, he's doing great. You're not going to believe our pastor. Man, he can debate theology. He really had Dr. Lamoglia going. I mean, he one one argument after, you know, I doubt that was the case. In fact, I was hoping that she would really forget that, and I, and I bet she did. She forget that conversation. So hopefully what she was said when she got to church that Sunday, you're not going to believe, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, and my pastor showed up. He cared. We, uh, we are called to, to see... We are called to make sure people know that we care. Jesus, Jesus saw in people potential. In fishermen, he, he saw them and said, you know what? I can make them into apostles and world changers. In a man with leprosy, he said, I, I can see past the disease and, and the stigma and I can reach out and make him whole. To tax collectors, he thought, I can train them to be kingdom supporters. To demon possess, I can, I can change that man into an evangelist. To, to the hungry, he said, I can see them and, and make, uh, make their needs met. To children, he said, I can see them 
and, and, and their mothers and give them value to the blind that everyone else ignored and even rebuked. Uh, I can see him and give him hope to the spiritually searching. I can speak truth to their heart. We have to see them and we have to serve them. Tony Campolo says this, the gospel of Jesus isn't just about getting people to heaven. The gospel of Jesus is also about letting the Holy Spirit use us to make this world the kingdom of God, which means he, it also is about you and me actually and practically loving our brothers and sisters in need. Our challenge then, church, is to reach out and serve. Kyle Eidemann uh, tells a story about a famous pastor, Fred uh, Craddock. Uh, Craddock was a a famous preacher of of decades ago, and and his father, uh, Fred Sr., was uh, not just a non-believer, he was a skeptic. Uh, Many different pastors in in, uh, Craddock's hometown had come to, to Fred's dad and tried to convert him, and and, and, and he sent them all away. He said he had, he had no desire to be a part of a church. In fact, he said all the churches want is, is one more person on the roll and, and one more dollar in their, uh, in their, in their offering plates and had nothing to do with it. Uh, later in life, Fred Sr. became ill and, and began to waste away. Uh, Fred Craddock said he received a call from his mother. He said, if, if you want to see your dad, you better come home. He's, fading fast and so said he went back to memphis tennessee to the va hospital and he stepped in to the room and he sat with his dad and uh and and he, and he heard this story then he said there was a church in memphis that that his dad had never attended had no contact with whatsoever but somehow this church had heard about him and, and started visiting him and started bringing meals to his wife and and started sending cars and and and, and they would show up the hospital and pray for him and and encourage him and, and as he was sitting there with his dad, he was unable to talk because of the cancer and the, the, the radiation treatment. He, he reached out and grabbed a pad and wrote these words, In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain and tell my story. Apparently that is a, 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 a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And, and so Craddock said, he looked at his dad and said, Dad, what's your story? And he said his dad's eyes filled with tears and he simply wrote, I was wrong. I was wrong. But what changed his mind? What changed his heart? What opened him up to the message of Christ? It was a church that didn't really even know him, but cared about him and served him. Church, if we, if we want to draw a crowd, we have to make them look. We have to make them see. And we have to be willing to make their day, to reach out and make a difference in their life. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we thank you this morning that we can be a church that makes a difference. Father, I'd, I'd, I'd pray this morning that we can put that on our heart. We can put that in our prayers that we reach out and make a difference in our world. Father, the power of the resurrection uh, is a power that changes us, that gives us direction and hope. And Father, we would pray that we can show that to our community and to our world. Lord, give us soft hearts. Give us pure hearts to reach out and serve. In Jesus' name, amen.